Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. everybody, this is Jason Shadrick with Premier Guitar, and welcome back to our final episode this week of Chasing Frets. I'm uh, joined this week with Joe Gore. Hello. And uh, we're wrapping up our week with Jim Campolongo, and this was one topic, Joe, that you kind of helped shape that we thought would be great to talk about, and that's how do we collect new influences uh, from either old records or even new music that that's caught our ear over the years. Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I've always admired about Jim is that He's very much the eternal student. I mean, obviously, he's a master player. But, um, you know, I think I think as long as he's alive and playing guitar, he's going to be searching for, you know, new things to discover and new skills to master. He just, he is not a rest on his laurels kind of guy. Yeah, and anytime I'm able to be a fly on the wall when they're talking about when eternal students are really talking about what's inspiring them, that's that's so valuable to me because it's like, even if... No matter how hard you've worked to get through a certain concept, you always know the people you look up to are working just as hard to, to figure something out. And and it was even got to a point where he literally reached around behind him and pulled something off the music stand that he was working on that day. Yeah. And just to see that, it was really, really inspiring. Eternal student is probably about the best attitude you can have as <laughs> yeah. a musician. I think a lot of very experienced, right. various, very wise people, you know, I'm sure if you asked Herbie Hancock, he'd say the same thing. Uh, we had such a great time with Jim this week. Uh, his latest record is called Two Guitars. You pick that up from uh, from his website and find out more information about that. It's so good. Here's our final episode with Jim Campolongo. about the same age as I am. You've been playing a real long time. Thanks to your success as a player, guitar fans have a really good sense of what the Jim Campolongo sound is. But after you get to a point where you've played for, you know, let's face it, most of your life, you have a musical identity that's that's appreciated around the world. Uh, how do you how do you keep expanding your field of reference? In one of our earlier examples, uh, interviews this week, for example, you said that you didn't feel ready to record a solo guitar record and haven't done one, which suggests that you're looking forward to a day when you, you know, you might want to cross that threshold. And I know just from knowing you that you're you're an eternal student. So how do, how do you keep the, uh, you know, pipelines of inspiration and new influences open and flowing? Well, thanks, Joe. That's a really sweet and Gracious and lovely question. I'm glad you see me that way. I mean, 
I mean, one thing is, is I usually try, and I've always done this, I think, is play with people who I learn from or who are kind of better than me. Um, I mean, I could go through case history with every band up to right now with even Josh or Chris or Luca. The other thing is um, I ask people what they're listening to or what they're interested in. You know, like, and if someone, you know, hey, Luca, what are you listening to? And it's, you know, sometimes it's like ACDC with Bon Scott, but sometimes it's something like that I, and I'll, vis I'll revisit ACDC with Bon Scott any day of the week. The other thing was, um, yeah, I guess I'm kind of a digger. Um, I... Uh, for example, I knew there was a, a, like a style of guitar that I knew I really liked, but I didn't know what it was called. And it was really Spanish guitar. And so I bought some Segovia records, kind of hit or miss. And some of them, you know, weren't my cup of tea. And then I found this one of Spanish guitar and I loved it. I really loved it. And like one of the composers that he covered was a guy named Federico Mompau, and who was a pianist and was influenced by Chopin, but it's, it's almost like new age music, but way deeper. And I found these recordings of Mompau uh, playing his own uh, uh, compositions when he was older. And I probably listened to that for months. I mean, I just, it's the only thing I put on. I, I probably have 3,000 records, but I still do that. Like uh, when I was 12, I'd buy a record with my paper out money and I'd have to listen to it for a month, no matter what. And I still just keep one record on for a while, whether it's Mom Powell or, sorry, whoever. Um, and, uh, and now I'm trying to get some Mom Pal on guitar. Uh, so, and the other thing I ask people, and again, this is all th through osmosis. Like, what are you practicing is what I ask people. And I, I, I've been mentioning this. I feel like it's a question that isn't asked in guitar interviews. Um, I mean, I would be really curious of two things about Jeff Beck. <laughs> like, if, if I owned a guitar magazine, I'd be like, Jeff Beck, how do you practice? When do you practice? And kind of push <laughs> it. Like, not, you know, don't let him say, oh, in between working on hot rods. Like, I don't believe that. Like, what do you practice? And then the other thing is I'd, like, want to see his house. Like, I want to see Jeff Beck's bathroom, you know? Like what, is, like, what does that look like? Like, those two things I'd have in my guitar magazine. So, but what people are practicing... Go, um, going to register uh, guitarbathrooms.com right now as we speak. <laughs> I mean, I think all the readers would be interested, personally. I actually recommended it to Michael Melinda, and I think he thought I was kidding. And I might have pretended I was after... He thought I was kidding. I didn't want to be embarrassed. You know, because, you know, I've done, I've done thousands of interviews often at, at musicians' homes, and it's very rare that you don't learn something in the bathroom, even if you're not going through the medicine cabinet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or 
if we could push it, the bedroom, <laughs> or even like his kitchen or whatever, I'd be really curious, like, wow, what does Steve Vai's kitchen look like or his refrigerator? Like, he probably has like... A lot of, a lot of broccoli rabe. <laughs> yeah, or something really healthy. Um, or maybe he has Doritos, you know? It'd be like, wow, like, I'm so glad I got this magazine. Uh, Steve Vai eats Doritos. Or you name it, um, whoever. But, but I ask people, what are you practicing? And generally, everybody I know is a practicer to some extent, even though we could all work really harder all the time. And it's been tough during the COVID era uh, for me uh, to really practice. Um, I noticed, and I'm really almost embarrassed to admit it, Evidently, I'm real gig-oriented. Um, you know, if I think, oh, I have to play on Monday, I better, you know, I better be ready, game game ready. Like, there's a certain lack lackadaisical attitude I've been having lately, but it's also a chance to to uh, uh, to practice. The other thing that I find frustrating, I find this truly frustrating. <laughs> is a lot of my practice time is relearning something I used to know. Like can you give us, give us an, give us an example of something that chopped up recently like that. Um, last week I relearned uh, Moonlight in Vermont by Johnny Smith. Okay. And that's kind of heady. Uh, but, and I used to like, no, I mean, you could kick me out of bed at two 30 in the morning and say, play it. And it was like some of it, I, I had to slow down, and I was like, is this... Some big chords, man. Yeah, I have kind of a lot, lot, like a lot of mass here. They're hard, though. They're, they, you know, that dude had definitely had, like, Jimi Hendrix fingers. But, for example, um, this morning I relearned uh, The Night Rider by Jimmy Bryan. Like, I have played that at clubs, and I was like, where, where am I? What's going on here? It's right here. I mean, I, truth be told, it's a lesson by mail that I sell and a transcription. And I had to get the transcription and relearn it. So a lot of things, I try to not just have that be my focus, but a lot of it's just relearning stuff I used to know. But I will say upon relearning this, I... I I mentioned in a previous podcast that I had more of a clarity. Like, I actually saw something in this that's real obvious, and I thought, oh, that's much easier. Um, the uh, A section just goes B flat, G minor, C7, F. And I thought, yeah, you don't have to really worry about the G minor. I mean, you could just play a six chord. And so all I have to worry about is the C7. It's the only thing, mm. C7 and then the five, but that's going to just happen. And there was a clarity I had. And so there was that improvement. And then there was the frustra frustration of going, where do I play this and what is it? Again, do you do that, Joe? Yeah, I think it's a function of having played a real long time, you know, and then also too, you know, it, it's everyone's different, but we tend to play it different ways in different parts of our lives. And I think... You know, having known you when there was there was when um, you know we were in our twenties, um, we had a really high opinion of ourselves. I mean, there was a certain 
there was a certain, you know, things that maybe have been done before that are new to you, you can think are like your powerful statement. And um, there's this kind of, uh, can be this kind of arrogant, gung-ho energy, which, you know, over the years, you're exposed to more music, you have new experiences, you learn success stories, you learn failure stories, and you probably become a little more, a little more humble about your, your spot in the musical firmament, if you're lucky enough to have one. Um, but having said that, there is something really powerful about that, you know, arrogance and confidence of youth, you know, that just, you know, what I'm doing is, is freaking great. And if you're too stupid to understand it, that's, that's your problem. Yeah, there, um, there is that, um, that thing. I mean, it's hard for me to remember that. Um, but I will say that when I was in San Francisco at the end, I remember, um, and there's so, there was always like, I remember we did a commotion thing. And if memory serves me correct, it was me, you, Charlie Hunter, Merv, and it might've been Buckethead. It was Buckethead. And uh, was it, was it Will Bernard too? Will Bernard. Yeah. We, this was like an underground illegal show. And none, no one, you know, you know, Jim wasn't famous. Buckethead was a teenager and, mm-hmm. you know, I'd only introduced Brian. him around, just recently introduced him to some musician friends in San Francisco, you know, and Charlie, Charlie was amazing Charlie, but he wasn't. No. He was, he was doing his Charlie Hunter, you know, uh, you know, multiple lines thing, but he was just kind of a local underground guitar player. So, um, uh, I'm, it was interesting. Interesting, you know that was a that was a that would have been a good gig to revisit in retrospect. A lot of a lot of the musicians there went on to do really impressive stuff afterwards. Okay, so that said, in the Bay Area, there was that going on. I mean, there was all those guys, and that was humbling. But that said, I, I mean, I remember playing gigs at the Paradise, and I'd see like the other band, and I'd see the guitarist, and I'd think hi, he doesn't know how to bend strings yet. Like, there was kind of like this higher echelon, and then there was guys that weren't real, they weren't, they weren't there yet. And when I moved to New York, uh, one, the first gig I did was in like August of 2002. Well, the first official gig, I had done some during 9-11. Um, but, uh, and so we played and some guy came up to me afterwards and he was like, Hey, I really enjoyed that. And he was really super nice. He's like, you know, wow, you're great. And you have your own style. I'm so glad I came. And I honestly thought like, this guy can't be very good if he really likes me and some of my experience in San Francisco, even though there was like super heavy cats kind of was like, you know, we were in another class, kind of. So I kind of assumed this guy wasn't very good. Like, and then Dan, the drummer, came up to me and goes, hey, do you know that guy? And I forget who it was, but he goes, he's in Steely Dan. And I go, you're kidding me. And, and that's kind of what would happen at New York. Like, there were, like, people like that everywhere. And mm. it that was humbling, too, and yet, it, it was kind of a really good thing in that it helps you solidify, okay, this is what I do. I don't do what he does. And then there's the guy from Brazil who's a virtuoso Brazilian guitar player, but he can't do 
Merle Haggard, you know, I mean, you kind of, you almost become an exaggeration of yourself sometimes. But yeah, I mean, I'm kind of, I, I, I don't know, there was a question in there. And, um, but also, but yeah, but having, I mean, you, I'm sure your perception was different, but watching from the outside, when I knew you in on this side of the country, um, you were, I mean, there, you, you know, you've improved and gotten more subtle and refined over the years, but you were basically playing Jim Campolongo music that anybody who digs Jim Campolongo today would have really dug back then too. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, like me, you were doing a lot of bottom feeder sort of gigs. And then it seemed that as soon as you went to New York, which is, you know, the, you know, the epicenter of American music and, you know, the standard of musicianship is so high, it seems like your career instantly took off and you went from being like a great unknown guitar player to a great, uh, rather well-known guitar player, um, seemingly quite quickly, as soon as you relocated. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of true. I mean, uh, it's a very flattering uh, perspective. But I think what, you know, I, I've been thinking about that lately because whatever, that's all we do. I mean, I... I I try, you know, I reflect like at least an hour and a half every day. <laughs> um, and, uh, but uh, when I came to New York, I was filled with kind of an anxiety-based ambition. Um, you know, I moved here, I was really scared. Um, and uh, I didn't like it. I didn't like the weather. I still kind of don't. Um, uh, everyone I knew had kind of left. Like I knew uh, a few people, but they, they were, went on tour. And, uh, so I really tried to take every day. I'd be like emailing people and trying to get gigs and trying to get somebody to, you know, I was trying to get together with Mark Rabot, poor guy. I was like emailing him and, you know, I just, it was this anxiety-based ambition that now I'd be like, yeah, you know, I don't want to bug Mark Rabot, but like I kind of was, I think I was bugging him. He was nice. Maybe I wasn't, but I don't think anybody played like telly like I do uh, then. Like I was kind of, it was very much more like jazz. And, and even to this day, um, now there's a bunch of guys who play tally and play the style I do, if not better, um, in some regards. Uh, but at the time, I was kind of it. And it was new. And it kind of made it, like, okay to not be, like, a jazz guy from Berkeley. Um, in that regard, I think I made, like, I got some notoriety. And then, you know, I was friends with Lee and Nora, uh, who weren't, Nora Jones, who wasn't a star yet, and then ended up being in the Little Willies. And, and all of a sudden, I mean, one advantage of being in New York, there's two that I noticed then, I don't know if it exists now, but it's like, all of a sudden, you're a New York guitarist. <laughs> like, I had been there like two months. You know, and it was like, yeah, you're a New York guitarist, so you're supposed to, you know, I was like the same guy I was in San Francisco. Um, and it was easier to go to Europe. Like, I mean, that's when touring started happening for me. I came here and all of a sudden, like, it was like this doorway to Europe. So, and particularly Finland, um, there was a guy, Ilka Rantamaki, who, uh, 
booked me kind of sight unseen to do this music festival in 2003 and i've been there maybe 16 or 17 times since so cool is it in helsinki oh yeah many many uh, it, you know 17 times i've stayed there many times i like helsinki I, yeah it's a cool town i like yavaskula too i mean i like finland the people are really cool they they're they're funny they're 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 like Pardon my English. I'm very sorry if it's you can't understand it. It's like, well, it's better than everybody in Brooklyn. I, mean, I don't understand anybody in Brooklyn in my home. And you go to Finland, it's like, ah. Like today, I, I, I got a summer rolls. And I think I said maybe 15 times, I swear to God, like, yes, with peanut sauce. Peanut sauce. Yeah, I mean, I said it like 15 times, and as soon as I got it, I opened it up. I went, yeah, he got, okay, he got it. You know, and it's great, man. I'm proud. Like, New York's great. It's diversity, and it's, there's nothing to be afraid of, and it's beautiful, and we all get along, you know. We have to. But that said, when I go to Finland, it's like, oh, man, everybody speaks English here. This is wonderful. So to, to wrap up our episode today, Jim, you've talked about kind of gleaning new inspiration from old records. Is there new music that you've discovered that's inspired you? Well, you know, I wish I could say, I, let me think, probably not. Like, I mean, there's so much music and uh, there's so many records I have that I haven't heard. Um, I... I went through a little Willie Colon, Hector Laveau phase last year um, and really love that. Um, they made like the greatest Christmas record in the history of man. Okay. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, Spanish for Merry Christmas. Do you know it, Joe? Feliz Navidad. That's it. And I just didn't want to mangle it. I knew that was it, but I'd say it like, you know some uh, Warner Brothers cartoon. Um, but it's just a great record. And I got into that uh, and went to Bogota, Colombia in November of, yeah, in 2000, just last year, and got a ton of records. All I did was go to record shops. They were really cheap. Um, cool. Yeah, that was cool. Um, I'm jealous. Yeah, Bogota was pretty cool. Um, you know, I don't know if I'd go back, but I kind of like, I'm, I'm just this like guy who, like I like room service and a beach, you know, <laughs> like go to the beach, lay in the sun, get some room service. But Bogota was cool. Um, I liked it. But I went to like three, we went to like three or four record stores coming out with like a ton of records. I actually had to buy a suitcase just for the records. Um <laughs> And, but like this morning, I mean, it, it's it's like I've been listening to uh, Tribe Called Quest and, you know, thinking about that. And there's like old music that I haven't listened to enough. Um, Low End Theory, man, that is like a smoking record. And I really love how grooving it is. And I, I've been trying to search for stuff that is about that i it, again i'm this isn't my expertise so forgive me my ignorance but some of the post gangster rap stuff the drums are lame and the progressions are kind of unexciting you know it's like it sounds like a rolling drum machine 
But I like it when they sampled. And uh, on that record, they have Ron Carter. I mean, it's like good music, man. Yeah, yeah. You know? The, sample, the Wild West sampling days where people were a lot more liberal about just stealing stuff. Whatever the uh, intellectual or copywriter property uh, aspects, leaving that all aside, it made for some really exciting music and a lot of a lot of rhythmic interest because people were, you know, when you would combine multiple, uh, you know, samples at grooves that would battle and tug a little bit, you you would get these amazingly weird and unique, um, you know, composite rhythms and. Yeah, Low End Theory is a really great example of that. Or, you know, the old P.E. albums or... The Roots. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing that strikes me is that, uh, you know, is it seems like that style of music supposedly started in Queens. And these guys would play James Brown records and loop the breakdowns and stuff. But it was started at, a, at community centers where people dance. And, you know, even when, I mean, I put on Tribe Called Quest when I walk, and all of a sudden I notice, like, I'm walking really fast, you know. It's like, man, this is moving. Like, it just makes me want to move my body, you know. And, yeah. and I think that priority might have waned a little bit. Uh, where the the person speaking and what they were saying uh, was the the focus, and again, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm, but but I know I really dig like Public Enemy's first record, and that era. There's like a specific era where, man, the, the grooves are fantastic. They'll like sample like a little Jimi Hendrix wah part, and it's in like, it's almost a total. Like it was originally yeah. an E7 sharp nine, but they have it going over D or something, you know, like, but it's hypnotic and moving. Um, so mm-hmm. to answer your question, no, not really. Um, I'm not, and I don't have Spotify, um, but I'm always digging, at least through what I have. Uh, and I have a lot of records I haven't listened to. But again, because I'm so slow at everything I do, uh, if I learn a tune, I'll spend a month on the tune. And if I get a record I like, I just listen to that record for a month. Mm. So, is you know, maybe there's something you could uh, hit me, t- you know, toward. There was, um, God, I can't think of her name. Uh, really long. She's a bassist. Um, Esperanza Spalding. She made this record. I had good thing because I wasn't finding it where it was supposed to be. <laughs> and I mean, I don't even know how do you describe that. Well, it's like every record of hers takes a different path. Yeah, I forget yeah, the name it's... of this one. It's a double record, and it was quite expensive. It was hard to find it on vinyl. Um, but that was, uh, I guess, it's maybe a year or two old now. But. I went down and I had a session at Ken Rich's studio and he said, Hey, you got to hear this. And I was like, wow, this is really good. I mean, it, it it's so dense. You know, I, I, I feel like it's speaking of high calorie, it's really high calorie. And sometimes I, my tastes are a little more uh, rudimentary than her music, but was it the was it the exposure album? No, uh, I'd know it if you said said it. 
uh, 12 little spells. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. I really thought that was, uh, like, like what a talent. Yeah. Matt <laughs> Stevens, the guitar player on that record's really great. Really great. I didn't know who it was, but he'll, he'll play like these really interesting repetitive parts, but they, they change ever so slightly. Really cool sound. It sounds like a, you know, a guitar and an amp, but it sounds fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. not a lot of pudding on it or anything. Well, Jim, it's been such an enlightening week hanging with you, man. I've learned so much. I'm over here taking notes of things I need to look up and practice and uh, really appreciate you taking the time this week. Well, it was an absolute pleasure, you know, to get to know you better, Jason, and of course, see my friend Joe, who I've known most of my life. <laughs>